thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. I hope you retained your place in Galatians, the second chapter. If there was a graduation ceremony at the school of Gamaliel, the great rabbi of the day, Saul of Tarsus was part of a graduating class there. And there were awards that were given out by peers to others who were finishing their training. Probably someone would have said about Saul, He's most likely to offend. Not to be offended, but to be the offender. He was a man who was so tightly wound that he always had to win. And he was one who was needing to be in control in each of every situation of his life, including all the people around him. And he didn't have any problem confronting people when he believed that they were wrong. Something radical happened when he came to know Christ. He became a new man. The Bible says that he, among others who know Christ, are new creations in Christ. That's what happens when we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord. The Apostle Paul's basic temperament was not changed in terms of the bents that God built into him when he was in his mother's womb and was called even when he was yet born to accomplish the mission of being the apostle of the Gentiles. We know he did not discriminate against the people of his own descent, the Jews, but his real passion was reaching non-Jewish people. But he was still the same. He was one who was competitive. And he alludes to the importance of us who know Christ being like athletes in training. He said this about himself, I'm like a boxer who boxes the air, shadow boxing really, to get into good condition. And he said, run to win. Remember that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? We're not in competition with each other. We are men and women who want to be the best we can be for the glory of God. And he was one who had tremendous leadership skills, and that was certainly in his genes to begin with because he was one who was a natural-born leader. But that naturalness was replaced by supernaturalist and the result of that was that he became a man who wanted to really help people reach their potential. Paul the Apostle also confronted people, and we've already read about it today, so let's look at Galatians 2. And of all people whom he confronted was Cephas. That name probably is a little bit unusual to you. You may not immediately attach it to someone that we know as Peter. 
when Jesus met Peter, he said, you are Simon. That was his given name in his home, the son of John. But you shall be called Cephas, which means rock. He became a rock quite different than who he had been before. But his rockiness was something that was really amplified. And it was something he had to deal with, not just before he came to know Christ, but after he came to know Christ. He had some real shaky times, and this was one. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Antioch, there were two possibilities as to what might have meant by Antioch. There were two prominent cities in the region of that part of the world which were named Antioch. One was in Pisidia, and you'll have to look at your map of that area to locate it. You can if you have maps in the back of your Bible, Pisidian Antioch. The other was in the north, in Syria. It was the more prominent. And by the way, that particular Antioch became the center of Gentile Christianity. And you know, I'm sure, that when we talk about Gentile, this text talks about Gentile, it's talking about non-Jewish people. Everybody in the world who is not a descendant of Abraham is a Gentile from the viewpoint of the Word of God. He said, I came to Antioch and I opposed Cephas to his face. This is not a gentle way of describing what Paul did. He got in his face. He got in his grill, as it were, and he was telling him like it was, that you're wrong, Cephas. Paul was saying that to one we know as Peter. You are wrong. And because you stand condemned. Now, what was the basis of his condition of being condemned? He was not in danger of losing his salvation. That was not in question. Because like Paul and like anyone who knows Christ, he had been justified by faith through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is therefore now no condemnation, the Bible says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been exonerated of any concern about being punished in eternity because of what Christ did on our behalf when He yielded Himself to be punished for our sin so that we could become followers of Christ. And this is as good a time as any for me to allude to the psalm that we read. We try to connect the psalm's reading, not always successfully, but we try to connect it to such things that we'll encounter in the text that we're working on. You may have noticed in the second verse what David said to God. In your sight, there is no living man who is righteous. David knew it. God put it in the Word of God even a thousand years before Jesus came and made it possible for us to be made right with God, justified. If there's no living man in David's time who could be considered righteous, what does that say about us? 
we are like David and all those in his era, in every area of era of humanity's existence, we are incapable of accomplishing righteousness. And that could be very frustrating, and it is very frustrating to many people because there are people who want to work for their salvation, and they really work hard. And the people that were trying to disturb and disrupt what Paul was teaching, which was the gospel of God as he describes it in the book of Romans, and he stood condemned, Peter did, condemned in the way he had let those dear believers down in some behavior. Let's see what that behavior was like. Verse 12, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Now, who were these certain men from James? We're going to see that they were people who had cast their lot with Jesus, and probably many of them, if not all of them, were men who were nominal followers of Christ. They still wanted to hold on to their Jewish traditions. They couldn't let go of what they considered, and to a degree they were correct, of their favored position before Christ came to save the world, not on the base of work, basis of works, but on the basis of what? Faith alone in Christ alone. In the book of Genesis chapter 12, actually, excuse me, it's chapter 15, verse 6. I got my chapters and verses mixed up. This is what the Bible says about Abraham. Now remember, he is the father of the Jewish nation. And we, by being adopted into the family of God, we have become adopted children of Abraham. I won't go into that, but that's what the scripture would indicate. But this is what the Bible says about Abraham. It says that Abraham believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. There was no written law of God at that time. Undoubtedly, Abraham had the law of God written in his heart or on the tablet of his heart, just like people all over the world, if they're made in the image of God and everyone is, there's this innate sense of what's right and what's wrong because God's law is written on the hearts of men. It's very frustrating because people try to work their way and ensure themselves of a place in heaven based upon what they do. And this group from James, they came from Jerusalem. And you will recall, we saw last week when looking at the 15th chapter of Acts, where Paul and his companions went to a council in Jerusalem. It was the ruling council of the church in Jerusalem, the mothership. And when they went there, they were wondering if they could get verification and a stamp of approval on Paul's gospel. It was not Paul's gospel. That's what they were saying. But it is and remains the gospel of God. And we'll look at this in more detail as to what that means. These people were not sent by James. James in question is the half-brother of Jesus. 
not James, the brother of John, who by this time has been beheaded and he's with the Lord in heaven. But he says, these men came and before they came, you used to eat with the Gentiles. That would have been unthinkable for Peter prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had never taken bread with someone who was a non-Jew. He had never eaten what was unkosher food. He was meticulous in the keeping of the dietary laws, but he was set free. How was he set free from such confusion? He was set free, we are told in the 10th chapter of Acts, when one warm day he got out from the stuffiness of the house where he lived. He walked to the top of the roof to get benefit of some gentle breeze and he had a nap. And he had this vision. And the vision was this big sheet was let down out of heaven. And it was filled with all kinds of animals that were unclean. And he interacted with the angel who was telling him about this and the Lord really is who it was. And he said, Lord, I'm never going to eat anything that's contrary to the law of Moses. I've never eaten anything that would make me unclean or unholy. He was a certain observant Jew. He was one who was careful to keep the law of God. And then he just separates from them. Now, why did he do it? We're going to see why in just a moment. The advent of this group of people did that to him. James, I doubt seriously when we put together what we learn in Acts about James, the half-brother of Jesus, I doubt seriously that he was in favor of this. These men had come from the church that he was the pastor of. He was the lead pastor. When you read it, you can see that in Acts chapter 15. Verse 12, the middle of it says, But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The language here is not altogether clear. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. It helps us to understand the construction of the verbs which describe what happened when this group from Jerusalem and the James gang, as you would call them perhaps, to help you remember it, had come. And he began, that's where word is given here. It's an added word. It's not in the New Testament, but the tense of the verbs are an indication that it was a gradual withdrawal. He didn't abruptly separate. He was probably conflicted about that, but he eventually disappeared. He had enjoyed fellowship with his Gentile Christian brothers. And then all of a sudden, because he was fearful of this group, what was he afraid of? He was afraid of the party of the circumcision. Why? Well, the same reason that you and I sometimes change our behavior, our speech, when we're around people who we know look down on Christians. Have you ever had that happen? When I was in college, I was in a large pledge class in a social fraternity, 
and there was one member of our class of 45 pledges, and this guy had two other friends in the class. The three of them were the only three who didn't drink alcohol. And it was the mission of the actives to get all three of them to begin to drink alcohol. They were teetotalers to that point, 18 years old. One of them was 17 years old. The other two, 18. Well, the long and short of it was that they were given nicknames. You know what their nickname was? The Golden Boys. And that we got razzed. We saw these guys get razzed like crazy. It was unbelievable. And after about three weeks, the name of two of them had been changed to Tarnished. <laughs> but there was one Golden Boy. And he continually got harassed by the actives and maybe even some of the pledges. I don't know about that. But he stayed true to what commitment he'd made to Christ is not to say that it's altogether a sin to imbibe. I'm not saying that. But for him, that's what he thought that God wanted him to do, and he stayed the course. He took ridicule, but he was able to stay. And his testimony was that he could do it because the Lord told him to and gave him the power to do it. But I know in my heart, many times I have backed away and watered down what I really believe to be true, not in terms of doctrine, but behavior. And maybe you have done that too. Why? Because we want to be liked by other people. Isn't that true? In the book of John chapter 12, the scripture talks about how some who were upper echelon people in the religious leadership of Israel in Jesus' time. And they secretly became followers of Christ. Now, secret following of Christ doesn't last forever. And what we have to do is come out for Jesus. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this sinful and adulterous generation, the Son of Man, when He comes, will not have any favor for that person. So, we see Peter caving in to the impression of others. A verse that I've tried to memorize and think about when it comes to the fear of man is found in Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Not in this life, but in the life to come. We're so worldly minded. We're so worldly minded of this man. He opposed him face to face. We don't know how close he got to the face. It makes me think about movies I've seen where young men and women are in boot camp and their drill sergeant is giving them you know what and he gets in the face of those trainees, red-faced. Paul might have been doing that. I don't know. But what we know is he was unhappy to see this happen to Cephas and the impact it had on all those who looked up to him. 
Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. That means not Jews who had not committed to Christ, but men in, who had been descendants of Abraham, still were physically, had given their lives to Christ. A lot of those joined in the hypocrisy of this group. We don't know how many were in the group from Jerusalem to bring down this scrutiny and make Paul have this opportunity to speak to Cephas because he had walked away from fellowship. Don't you know that would have been confusing to the Gentiles who had come to Christ? How all of a sudden Peter didn't show up. He'd been so friendly and enjoying it, genuinely enjoying it, but he caved in to the peer pressure. And even, this is what really astonished Paul, I think, more than anything else when you get right down to it, with the result that even Barnabas, even, he couldn't believe it, was carried away by their hypocrisy. Perhaps you remember that Antioch was, I'm talking about Syrian Antioch, which is mentioned here in this passage of Scripture, was the place that Christianity for the Gentiles really exploded. And Barnabas was sent by the church at Jerusalem, where James, the half-brother of Jesus, was the pastor, sent there to check it out. Why? Because Barnabas was so well thought of, and he was a man after God's own heart. And he got there, and he saw how big the job was, and he knew he couldn't do all the discipling. And the others who came to Christ, they were too young in the faith to really do an adequate job in that regard. So what did he do? He said, you guys say here, I'm going at my own expense to Tarsus because I have knowledge that Saul is there. That's his hometown. I'm going to go get him and he is going to come back, I believe, and help me disciple you. Sure enough, he did it. Saul who we know that was his Hebrew name, Paul, his Greek name, came with him and came there. And he had really been the only one who befriended. Barnabas was the only one who befriended Paul, Saul, in that situation. But he himself was carried away by the hypocrisy. Can you imagine what that would have done to Paul? disappointment. And Barnabas was there listening, by the way. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, let's stop right there. The word straightforward is a word which was used outside the New Testament to describe someone who cut a path for others. A trailblazer, we would call such a person, blazed a trail. And it was a straight trail. And it was a, a straight trail that others who were less mature could follow in as that individual trailblazer is following the ultimate trailblazer, Jesus. He's the pioneer. One of the translations of the book of Hebrews says, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And we're to follow Christ. And when we do, we're going to walk in the way that God would have us to walk. When Paul saw 
that these people coming from Jerusalem who were undermining the gospel, he saw that they were not walking in a straightforward way and not certainly in the truth of the gospel. We'll get to what the truth of the gospel is in a bit. In the middle of 14, he said, I said to Cephas. So, so far, he is one who confronts Cephas, i.e. Peter. But now what we see is he's going to speak these words to him in the presence of all. I don't know about you, but I am uncomfortable confronting people in front of other people. But sometimes what they have done that's wrong is so severe that it warrants such confrontation to serve not only as a correction for the one who has gone awry, but also to let the others who are present not to go down that same path. And many of them were being tempted to do this. So that's why it was done in the presence of all. If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? He's calling him out, isn't he? He's putting the finger on his hypocrisy. And so we understand this when we look at this passage of Scripture that Paul could do nothing other than what he did because, after all, he was a spiritual father, if you will, with a little f, of these Galatian churches. Now let's look at what he says as he's already confronted him and now he talks about the things that need correcting in the thinking of this bunch of Jews who had allegedly come to know Christ and were trying to add to what Christ did. And by the way, most scholars believe that this group from James were people who would not argue that Christ is the only way to God. They would not have argued that we're saved by grace through faith. What they did, though, they added to the gospel of God. And they added circumcision, which was according to the Mosaic law. And they, in so doing, were trying to trap those people who were falling for what they were saying and be jeopardized in their walk with the Lord. Verse 15, we are Jews by nature. That means natural born descendants of Abraham and not sinners from among the Gentiles. And the word sinner here is probably a, a synonym for pagans, people who were just people who had no God at all that was real. They may have been worshiping multiple gods because pantheism was part of the Mediterranean Roman world. Look at verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, he's going to say that again two other ways, so let's work through this, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. Now, pause here just a moment. In verse 15 and then again in verse 16, we see a little change. It's easily to overlook. He had talked to Peter by saying you, using the pronoun you singular, not y'all, but you, 
correcting him, but here he softens his approach a bit after having corrected him face to face. He says, we, and there's wisdom in that. We are Jews by nature. We have believed in Christ Jesus. He had no doubt that Peter was a follower of the Lord and a, a solid follower. He had just been distracted and he'd fallen for the bait of the devil. And he was afraid to come out for what the Lord wanted for him and for all who follow Christ. He goes on to say in the middle of verse 16, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Have you ever read Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? I bet there's probably over 100 people here who started to read the whole Bible and they got to one of those books and they said, man, I just can't take this anymore. <laughs> well, persevere. There's some good stuff that you miss if you don't read it. It's all God's Word. But what we know is that all those laws, they're the moral laws which are still bounding upon us, the Ten Commandments. They're binding on us still to this day not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to steal. That's part of God's law that will never change in this life. Other parts of it have to do with the way you dress, what kind of cloth you use in making your clothes, all kinds of stuff like that. Now, let's pause just a moment before we go any further. Remembering what we saw early in the message that there is nobody who is righteous in the sight of the Lord. That would include these people. And what Christ did for us, we could never have done for ourselves. We're sinners, hopelessly sinful. And what does the Lord do? He sees our plight. It didn't catch Him by surprise. The plan of our salvation was already in effect and that plan was that God the Son would become a human being and live a perfect life, keeping every jot and tittle of the law. In fact, Jesus says that. In the book of Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, I have kept every aspect of the law of Moses. And that means He's the only one capable of being called holy. So what did He do? He did what God the Father sent Him to do. God sent His Son into the world to do what? To die for sinners, you and I, to do for us what we never could do for ourselves and justify us. That was a courtroom term of that day in the Roman court system. We've looked at it before. And what it means that when someone is justified by a Roman court, legally found not guilty. That's what it means in the court of God, the ultimate judge. What it means is that when we know Jesus, and how do we know Him? We know Him when He reveals Himself to, to us and when we realize that He's calling us to Himself. We 
sense He's calling us, we know the emptiness in our heart. I had the opportunity to be with a man last week who came and he was in desperate straits. And he said, I'm at loose ends, basically. And I shared the gospel with him. And then, lo and behold, this man who had had all kinds of problems in his life, he accepted the invitation to receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And here's the backstory. One of his best friends, they have been friends, this man's in his late 40s, they have been friends since they were in grade school. His best friend came to know Jesus about six or seven years ago, and this best friend had witnessed to him for six years. I was just there to explain the gospel more fully, and he was primed to receive Christ. It was awesome. And to see that man's life, life change. And when you were justified, listen carefully. That means that the Lord has forgiven you of all your sin in terms of your having to worry to be punished. It also means that when He looks at you, God's not ignorant of anything, is He? He's all-knowing. But when He sees us now, instead of see, seeing us in sin, what does He see us in? In Christ, right? And what is Christ to God the Father? He's His Son, but it's His perfect Son. He's the perfect Lamb of God, the only sacrifice that could pay for your sins. And so we have nothing to give to the Lord that could enhance our position with Him. Nothing. The best person in this room, and there's somebody, we don't know who that might be, there's somebody who is by his or her natural nature, a better person than the rest of us. But that person has no advantage over anybody else. I was interested about advantage based upon birth. And remember the people who were touting this additional thing, the circumcision, they were descendants of Abraham and they were really proud of it. And if I were a descendant of Abraham today, I'd probably be grateful for it too. I am by Adoption, but not by natural birth. Well, these guys were guys who were depending upon their heritage. And I looked up and I just wondered how many, by percentage, students are admitted to an Ivy League school because they are legacies. You know what a legacy is? A parent had gone to that university. And Harvard alone, if you were a legacy, you had four times greater likelihood of getting admitted. Well, you got some good genes working intellectually probably there and study habits too. But look, we are not at any deficit if we are people who understands you're saved not by what you do, but by what God has done for you. No flesh will be justified by works of the law. Jesus fulfilled every law in Scripture. And Jesus died for you voluntarily so that you and I could be able to receive eternal life by receiving Jesus Christ. Is that wild or what? 
And I know what some of you may be thinking. You're saying, in fact, I've had people say this to me more than one time when I was sharing Christ with them in a one-on-one. -on -one. When I give this part of the presentation, I've had people say, it looks like people would take advantage of that. And what they were saying was, I know myself well, and I know if I knew I could get away with sinning, I would keep getting away with sinning. But what happens, here's the beauty of it. When someone comes to know Christ, where does Christ live? In them. In their soul and spirit. By the Holy Spirit of God. And Christ in you, the Bible says, is your hope of glory. What's that all about? It means our hope of being with the Lord in heaven is based simply and solely upon what Christ has done for us and His coming to indwell us. Paul says, and we'll look at this in some detail next week, look at verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in who? Me. That's what happens when you give up on trying to be religious and you give the Lord control of your life and you just say, I surrender, Lord. I need you. I'm empty, Lord. I'm tired of faking it. I'm tired of not being able to overcome habits that are killing me and ruining my relationships. Lord, what can I do? And he says, nothing except accepting me. And look what the Scripture says. We're in the vicinity. Just turn to the next book in your Bible, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Look at it. Ephesians 1, 4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us to be adopted to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace, now listen, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Who does the word Beloved refer to? In Christ, the Beloved Son of God. And so, when Christ comes to indwell us, He's not dormant. It may look like it sometime. He's not dormant. And remember, how does He live in us? By the Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Among other things, He convicts us of our sin. The Bible speaks of that in John 16, the words of Jesus, beginning with verse 7. He convicts us of our sin. When you really know Jesus Christ, you may be able to stiff arm him for a while. But there'll come a moment and it can, his voice gets louder and louder and louder. I'm not talking about hearing it with these ears, but internal ears. And you know you've got to get back in a, a time with the Lord and say, Lord, thank you for convicting in my sin. I want to confess my sin as you say I'm to do as your child and you will give me a fresh start. I'm already forgiven of all the sin I'll ever commit. I won't be punished for it. But I'm still a work in progress. He says, I know that. And I'm working in you. And you can be sure, I who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
That is a promise of God. Aren't you glad? If you know Christ, it's not because of anything you have done to keep the law. It's only because Christ kept it all and died for you. And so as many as receive Him, to them He give the right to become the children of God. Just because you're made in the image of God, you're not a child of God. It's when we receive Christ. And He calls us and we move toward Him. It's not an audible voice, but in our hearts, we know this is the truth, that Jesus is who He says He is, that He loves us, that He loved us so much that He died on the cross for us. Even while we were His enemies, He died for us. Talk about an incredible otherworldly kind of love. This is what our Lord Jesus does for us. The Spirit of God works in us. One last look at another verse. Turn to 1 John chapter 3 over near the back of your New Testament. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John's an incredible book. I know there's an opportunity for you women to come on Thursday to for Jen Wilkin, and I hope you take advantage of one, and you can take advantage of both of those Bible studies if you want to. You'd be welcome, I know. All the ladies who lead it would be glad to have you if you came. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. No one who is born of God practices sin. Uh Uh-oh. Do you still practice sin? I'm not proud of it, but I do. And I I know it when I do. And how do I know it? The Holy Spirit lets me know it. And He lets me have it sometimes. For the devil... Excuse me, I'm in the wrong verse. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. What is this all about? Whose seed? God's seed. Who is God's seed? Jesus Christ, His Son. He lives in us. And... He that is the one who is in question here, the human, he cannot sin because he is born of God. And that is, we're helped by the understanding that the word translated cannot sin means not to be in a state of continual sin. And there doesn't seem any interest in getting closer to the Lord or any progress that's being made because we try to use God instead of realizing that He's not for use. He's for your salvation that you could never earn for yourself or deserve by simply coming to Him and asking Him to come into your life, receiving Him as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. If you've never received Jesus, why not? You can't ever get to the point where you get clean enough to receive Jesus. You have to admit that, that your righteous works are of no value. In fact, they make the Lord sick. But what we know is when we surrender trying to make ourselves right with God and we cry out to God, He saves us, and He gives us eternal life. Thank you, Lord. We pray that 
there will be people here today who would take to heart what you say in Galatians chapter 2 and come to know Jesus as his or her Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.